Hey there, Story family. I'm so glad you're a part of the Stories Online campus today. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor of the Story, and hope you had a great uh, Christmas celebration with friends or family. I hope you also have ushered in the new year with all kinds of joy, and uh, I'm full of joy today, especially this year. You know, every New Year's is is pretty much my favorite time of the year every year, but but this year especially, just getting to flip the calendar on 2021. And if you know me and you know the story well, you know the last eight months in particular have just been full of disruption and change, and some of it really good change, some of it really hard. Um, and we've been talking about flipping the calendar and what will happen in 2022 for what seems like forever. And finally, it's here. And so we get to start moving ahead now. And, and yet uh, we also take stock at a time like this. And so much indeed has changed. Um, for the first Sunday ever today, uh, we're not a part of St. Luke's Methodist Church or the United Methodist Church at all. For the first time in my life, after 23 years of preaching messages most Sunday mornings, this is my first message to ever preach without being a United Methodist, my first non-United Methodist <laughs> sermon. And I don't even know what to do with that. It feels weird. But as of yesterday, I'm no longer a United Methodist pastor, just a pastor, a pastor of the Story Church. And and uh, and so a lot has changed. We have a new home in the Museum District of Houston, which is beautiful and coming along so well with the renovations. It'll be open in a few weeks. And, uh, and of course, we have our home in Timber Grove, which is celebrating one year of life today. Today is Timber Grove Campus's first birthday, so y'all wish them a happy birthday in the comments section. Pastor Kale and his team have done an incredible job uh, at Timber Grove. Listen, um, this is the first Sunday of a new year, and so it's a new day. It's a new year. It's a great time to think about moving forward and, and, and becoming the people uh, or the church that we think God has called us to be. And so to, to really live into that, this moment, I, I thought we would spend a few weeks on a little uh, series of messages that's designed to inspire you. You know, this is a series called, This Is Your Year. And if we've done our job by the end of these three weeks, um, my hope anyway, is that you, all of us really, will feel inspired by God's spirit to claim by faith that this is your year. This is our year, our year to grow, our year to change, our, our year to, to know God more than ever before, or our year to love and be loved, to, to live and forgive. There's all kinds of things I, I want all of us to claim um, for this new year. And, and you know, Jesus says that when you claim or, or seek something by faith, in him that uh, he is faithful to, to deliver that. So I'm, I'm going to put aside all cynicism, given how difficult the last few years really have been. Uh, I'm gonna put aside all of that, all of that despair that 2019, 2020, and then 2021 brought us. And I, I'm going to claim now that uh, this year can be different for me and for you and for us as, uh, as a church. So no matter what 2022 may bring us, uh, whether it's another, you know, half dozen or a dozen uh, new COVID variants, who knows how many more of those there can be, or whether it brings you difficulty at work or disruption in a relationship that you treasure, or whether it means 
you know, even something like, I don't know, the midterm elections next year, this year becoming a circus, which we all know that they will. Or even if it means Carlos Correa by the end of this year will have led the New York Yankees to their next World Series title. Uh, as hard as that is to say, no matter how bad 2022 may get, I am here to declare that it is your year and mine to change, to grow and to know God in, uh, in ways that maybe you haven't known him before. So today to start this series, I'd like to talk about this year, 2022 being your year to find a way. Your year to find a way. Sounds ambiguous, right? Sounds like an incomplete thought. <laughs> find a way to what? Well, I can't, uh, I don't think I can answer that question for everyone. Um, I, I'm gonna invite you to, to engage and answer that question for yourself. But here's what I do know, that we all in our lives, we all have something that's some area or part of our life that is a struggle. And it's been a struggle for so long now that we have ceased to seek a remedy. We don't even try to fix it anymore, something that's just a little off or something that's broken or something that's missing or toxic. And it's been that way for long enough that we've just sort of waved the white flag and accepted it. We just decide that's who we are. It's the way we're always gonna be. And we do our best to mitigate the harm done by it. We hide it from people. We try to hide it from God. Um, we try to deny that it's a problem. And I think some of y'all are starting to get a sense of what I'm talking about here. When I say it's your year to find a way, I'm talking about that thing. To find a way to combat it, to overcome it, to find a way to, to name it and then destroy it. That thing that's holding you back in a place of stasis. It, it could be a habit um, or a pattern of behavior that's destroying you slowly, like an addiction or uh, you know something to deal with drinking too much or too often or smoking or using other substances more than you should. Um, it could have something to do with sex or I know for a lot of people it's pornography, just this kind of attitude toward these things that is, uh, that is a surrender of sorts. <clears throat> like it's just who we are, we accept it. No, that's not who you are. And this is your year to proclaim that and to live into who you really are. And so it, it could be something like a habit. It could be something like a relationship in your life that has slowly over time just gotten worse and worse to the point that you feel now that it's irredeemable or that it can't be fixed. And so you've just kind of given up and you're coasting in your relationship with that person. No, don't coast. God calls us to holiness. He calls us to something better, an abundant life. And that includes, that includes our relationships. So this could be your year to claim that transformation. Or it could even be a kind of spiritual paralysis. I see a lot of people going through, frankly, where uh, even people that go to church and call themselves Christians don't really have a vibrant, robust relationship with God where they're talking to God like a father, the father that he really is. And, and there's this growing faith-based connection that you have with God and it's, it's, uh, it sustains you, you know, that kind of thing. Some of you don't even know what that feels like because it's been so long since you connected with God in that way and you're in a spiritual rut. A paralysis has set into your soul and if you thought about it long enough, you could probably connect it back to some disappointment with God or some doubt that you have about God or, or some trauma maybe that you've had with the church. And, uh, and it's got you stuck. 
Well, this is your year to get unstuck. This is your year to find a way. So that's, that's what I want us to, to think and talk about today. And I want us to think about this topic through the lens of a very familiar story from the Gospel of Matthew. And, you know, even though it's a story that a lot of Christians have uh, heard uh, several times throughout your life, if you've heard this story before, just know that it's always the familiar stories in the Bible that we miss the meaning on because we think we know it. I'm telling you, there are many, many layers to this story found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So here we go. I'm going I'm to read this passage from my Bible. And uh, one of the things I'm changing in 2022 is uh, I, I, I want us to, on Sundays especially, get a little better about actually picking up and holding our Bibles when we talk about the Bible so that we all become more familiar in a in a a tangible way with God's word. I just think that's a very simple thing we can do to grow. It's an incremental step, but it's an important one. So I'm gonna try to do my best to to, uh, embody this with my preaching. This is Matthew chapter two, verses one through 12. And this is one of the few stories that we have about Jesus's childhood. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who had been born, who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. That means the elites, the establishment of Jerusalem. They were disturbed. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote from the Old Testament, from, uh, from the, the prophets, which, which this one says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. All right, that's the prophet Micah um, speaking there about the coming Messiah, saying he would come out of Bethlehem, right? Verse seven, then Herod called the the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen went uh, when it rose, went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. By another route. All right. So what do we do with a story like this one? Is this the stuff of mythology? It's often said that other Messiah-type figures and other pagan religions and things like that were visited by three kings uh, like Jesus was which again, isn't, uh, isn't a sign that Jesus 
was a copycat myth of these older pagan uh, religions. Uh, in fact, it's a sign that the pagan religions tried to copy Jesus and write the facts of Jesus's life into their own mythologies. And the fact that they wrote into their myths that, that Jesus was visited by three kings, I mean, that their, that their gods, like Jesus, were visited by three kings is humorous in a way, and I'll talk about why in, uh, in just a moment. But first, I want us to see that this is, uh, this is Matthew's account. Matthew's a real guy, one of Jesus's 12 apostles. This is his account of something that happened in history. And one of the evidences for, for seeing that and believing that is uh, the mention of real people. And there's a few characters in this cast of characters in this story that I want us to take a closer look at today. Uh, you're gonna find yourself in some parts of these characters that, that we're gonna talk about. And the first of these three sort of figures that I wanna look at in this story is Herod. King Herod is a historical figure, very well-known and well-documented throughout uh, non-biblical literature of the time. And uh, he's a character. Uh, King Herod um, lived in the first century BC, and uh, he was called the king of Judea or the king of the Jews, uh, which is confusing for anyone who knows a little bit about history because uh, in those days, Judea was part of the Roman empire. And if you know anything about Rome, you know that there was no king but Caesar in Rome. So how was Herod allowed to call himself a king of Judea within the greater Roman empire? King Herod, the first thing to know about him is that he was a very skilled politician and opportunist. He made uh, connections with all the right people at all the right times. And King Herod, uh, although he was a, a Jewish man, uh, actually descended uh, from the Edomites. He was an Edomite, uh, which means he was a descendant of Esau, Jacob's brother uh, in the Old Testament. Even though he was a Jewish guy from Judea, he, he spread his wings a little bit and got to know the right people in Rome. For example, it is documented that, that for a time, King Herod was buddies with Mark Antony, that Mark Antony um, of uh, Roman fame. And uh, they were close. And it was through his connection with Mark Antony that King Herod got Caesar's approval to use the title as King of the Jews. Or uh, he was really not a king. He was a puppet king, but he wanted to be called a king. He's one of those guys. You kind of get a profile here. Uh, everybody knows a guy like this. Um, and anyway, uh, King Herod got permission by virtue of his relationship with Mark Antony. Well, uh, over time, that relationship fizzled. Uh, they had a falling out, and it was about a girl, of course. Uh, Mark Antony fell in love with a girl. Maybe you've heard of her, Cleopatra. And Cleopatra, this is also documented, thought King Herod was repulsive, revolting. She hated him and didn't want her new man, Mark Antony, hanging out with King Herod anymore. And so she came between them. And, uh, and also she uh, kind of had a hand in com coming between Mark Antony and Caesar Augustus, who's mentioned in the Bible, uh, whose name was Octavian. Anyway, I'm a little bit of a nerd about this stuff, but uh, when Cleopatra and Mark Antony led an uprising against Octavian, Caesar Augustus, uh, and Caesar Augustus came out victorious, stamping out that uprising, uh, King Herod actually benefited from the fact that he and Mark Antony had had their falling out because then he could go back to Caesar Augustus and say, I'm on your side, not theirs. Congratulations on your victory. Can I build you multiple temples in your honor throughout Judea? Which he did, which Caesar Augustus loved, which uh, meant he could keep his royal title as king of Judea. 
Now, back home in, in Judea, King Herod was known for a number of different things. He was known on the good side, on the positive. Let's start with positive. <laughs> King Herod was known for being a great builder, a great uh, architect and, and a fundraiser. Uh, albeit through uh, mostly through taxes of the poor. Uh, <laughs> but he still built uh, incredible things that archaeologists today still marvel at. But he's really known for being a tyrant. Um, that can't be overlooked here. He was uh, bloodthirsty, just a, a monger of, of violence and, and, uh, and bloodshed. And, and he, he uh, executed people that were close to him all the time. He executed members of the Sanhedrin that disagreed with him. He executed members of his own family who disagreed with him. He executed uh, his uh, wife's grandmother. He executed his own three sons. He executed his favorite wife um, <laughs> for, uh, for uh, cheating on him, which she didn't do. And later he admitted that she didn't do it. He killed her anyway. And then he built a tower in her honor, which I'm sure she appreciated posthumously. <laughs> he killed his own mother-in-law. And uh, I know that we've all spent a lot of time with our families over the holidays. This is not the moment that I want you to sh share a King Herod and your mother-in-law joke, uh, but <laughs> I sympathize, okay? But, but uh, th this is not the time, okay? I'm talking about King Herod, right? And, and how uh, much of a monster that he was, he truly was a monster, and uh, it's played out in the Gospel of Matthew, just after today's reading, of course, uh, is when King Herod um, orchestrated the massacre of the innocents, where he wiped out all of the uh, baby boys in Bethlehem, two years of age and younger, okay? So he was a murderer and a tyrant, and everyone knew it. That's the first guy that this story in Matthew 2 introduces us to. The second sort of figure, there's actually multiple figures uh, in this second category, and those, those are the magi. These magi are um, mysterious to say the least. Um, and I know they're, they're usually represented in all of our uh, nativity scenes as uh, guys with long beards and dark skin on the backs of camels and things like that. I, I think we just fail to really grasp who these magi were. Um, every time I talk about the Magi uh, visiting the cradle of Jesus, I feel compelled to remind Christians to forget everything they think they know about the Magi, especially the details of that dreadful Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are, because there is absolutely nothing right about that song at all, at least not the title. There is nothing biblical about it. The Bible doesn't say there were three Magi, the Bible says that a group of Magi brought three gifts. Um, that's why the whole, uh, the whole thing about, you know, Jesus being a myth because other myths had three kings bringing gifts. Like that was totally a misunderstanding of what Matthew actually says happened. He says a group of Magi brought three gifts. We know from historical references that the Magi were famous throughout the region and that when they traveled, they traveled in large caravans of a hundred or more people uh, altogether. So this was a big group of people, more than likely, um, that came to pay homage to Jesus. So um, uh, the second thing the Bible doesn't say is that they were kings. Obviously, they were not kings. Uh, they were known to be, again, famous throughout the land for being astrologers, meaning they were fortune tellers or diviners using the, the stars, their reading of uh, astronomical events to predict the future. 
And kings and other powerful people would use their services to get an edge in their political maneuverings or in wartime and things like that. They were also known for their abilities to uh, uh, interpret dreams. And so kings and rulers would have them interpret their dreams and tell them what was really going on. So this is a pretty, uh, a pretty famous class of people, definitely not kings. However, um, uh, the Bible also doesn't say that they came from the Orient, like the song We Three Kings does. And I'm glad the Bible doesn't say the Orient, like they came from the Orient, because I'm pretty sure that's slightly racist. You can't say that these days. Uh, anyway, but they came from, uh, most likely from a nearby kingdom like Persia. So if that song were biblical, which it's not, but if it were, uh, it would more likely uh, be titled, instead of We Three Kings of Orient R, it would be We Hundred Plus Astrologers of Persia, perhaps. <laughs> but no matter, I digress. There's something else happening with these magi that's really important for us to pay attention to, um, that we can learn something powerful from, okay? Here's what we know. And this is, you can find this stuff in the history books, online, wherever. At around the time of Jesus's birth, there were a series of extraordinary astronomical events in the heavens. Um, there was uh, actually three different occasions within a decade of something like the Christmas star phenomenon, which if you remember, um, you may not because it was 2020 and so much has happened since Christmas 2020, but we had an appearance of the Christmas star, quote unquote, in, at Christmas time of 2020. And we did our Christmas uh, candlelight services outside that year because of COVID. And we were able to see the Christmas star as we did our Christmas Eve service. It was really, really cool. But the Christmas star wasn't really a star at all. It's, uh, it's the, the great conjugation, they call it, of Jupiter and Saturn, creating a really bright uh, figure, a really bright star-looking thing in the sky. Well, a similar thing happened around the year that Jesus was born, not just once or twice, but three times within, uh, within eight years. And, and so, uh, you know, something was going on in the skies that got these astrologers from Persia, got their attention. They saw this phenomenon happening and they, they took it to mean that, that, uh, that a new king had been born, that, that, that was their interpretation, that a new ruler of a neighboring kingdom had been born. And so they did actually what diplomats from foreign nations did at the time. There was very sort of understood protocol for situations like these. They gathered a, a group, a caravan, and they traveled to where the new king had been born, probably under the direct orders of their king in Persia. And they went first to Jerusalem to check in with the sitting ruler, with the sitting authority, which was very much according to protocol. These guys were by the book guys. They, they came as emissaries from a foreign land to pay homage to a neighboring uh, newborn king. So they go and check in with Herod first. And of course, King Herod is just thrilled by the news that there's a new king of the Jews who's been born, right? Not so much. King Herod didn't have the stomach for that kind of thing. He was a very insecure fellow. And, uh, and so uh, still, he, he saw this uh, as an opportunity because when they came to him to check in, uh, they, he, he asked them for more information. He said, so uh, about how long ago did you see this star appear? And they told him uh, two years or so beforehand. 
um, which told him how old this child, uh, this newborn king uh, might be. And then he said, well, once you go out and, and find this child, uh, you know, this is such good news that I too would like to go and, and, uh, and worship. Uh, that's the word, right? Worship, yeah, this little guy. So come back and talk to me about where you find him. And uh, you can just see the scheming happening in, in King Herod's mind. And, and these, uh, these magi appear to be along for the ride. They, they, they hear him, then they go out and follow his orders. They go out to find the child. Now, uh, I love, I absolutely love what, uh, what happened next because the Magi, they went and they found Jesus, who again was around two years old, and they presented him with the world's first ever Christmas presents. And what do you get the two-year-old who literally has everything? Exactly what every two-year-old wants, right? You get him some uh, spices, uh, some incense, and some blocks, bricks, that are too heavy to play with. So uh, you got some myrrh, some frankincense, and some gold. I'm sure two-year-old Jesus was less than thrilled with that that, uh, offering. However, I bet Mary and Joseph were pumped about it because having been given a treasure trove of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, Mary and Joseph immediately became the wealthiest family in the region, the wealthiest family in Bethlehem easily. And uh, I imagine it took them a minute to pick their their chins up off the, off the ground, right? Now, <clears throat> what I love about this story is that at the very end of it, after proving themselves to be rule followers and protocol keepers, these magi, these Persian astrologers came uh, following every rule and at the very end, it's, it, the story tells us, Matthew tells us that they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, assuming, we're assuming here that for the child's protection. And then heeding that warning, they went home by another road. They, they literally found another way home. After, uh, after this, reading this story, we, we, we've got to ask some questions, right? Like, why in the world would God um, need this or want this to happen? Why would God, at this pivotal moment in history, as his plan for salvation is finally unfolding in Jesus Christ, why would God choose to involve these foreign, pagan, polytheistic, Persian uh, astrologers, given that throughout the Bible, Practices like astrology and divination and fortune telling and all the things that these guys spent their whole lives doing were strictly forbidden in scripture. Everything about these guys screamed that they don't belong with the God of Israel, that they don't belong with Jesus even. And so why would God take these sinners with no shame really about what they're doing with their lives and call them to the to the cradle that held the hope of the world. Why? What was God thinking? Well, God is the third figure introduced in this story and and the third figure I want us to take a closer look at to see exactly who we're talking about and what he was up to. 
because I don't think there are accidents with God. If he's God, there can't be accidents or surprises for him. And so clearly God wanted these magi at, the, at, at that house in Bethlehem with Jesus. They, he wanted them in close proximity to the Lord for a reason. Perhaps it's reasons we'll never fully understand, you know? Maybe God wanted them there just because of what gifts they brought. Because right after this story, remember, King Herod got upset that he had been subverted by these magi. And he sent the soldiers to Bethlehem to take out all the two-year-old baby boys. Um, and, and Joseph and Mary and Jesus had to get out of town quick. And as far as I can tell, the only way that a, family, a peasant family like them could have afforded a multi-year international trip to Egypt where they fled to safety was, you know, with the financial backing of their new Persian friends. Perhaps that's a reason why God wanted these magi close to Jesus. Or maybe it was something else. Maybe God in this story wanted the Magi come, coming to Jesus because God knew that there was a greater plan in store for the Magi and their homeland. And this is, might, be, might feel like a little bit of a stretch, but here's what we know for sure. By the time the gospel of Jesus Christ reached Persia in the second century, just less than 200 years after the life of Jesus on this earth, we know, historically speaking, we know there were over 20 Christian bishops ordained and sent to lead dozens of Christian churches in Persia, reaching tens of thousands of Persians in a land that had no connection to Jerusalem, really, or to, or, or, or to uh, Judaism or to Christianity at the time. No cultural overlap there, but the gospel thrived when it reached Persia. Why? I don't know, but I wonder if maybe those magi, those hundred or so magi in that caravan, and took the name of Jesus home with them and prepared the way for the gospel to thrive in Persia. Who knows? Or, or maybe it was something else. We also know that a few centuries after that, when the Persian military began uh, running roughshod over the land known as the Holy Land today, uh, they conquered Jerusalem and Bethlehem with it. And, and in doing so, they destroyed every Christian church they came across and every Jewish synagogue in, in like manner, except for one church, the church of the nativity in Bethlehem, the church that sat and continues to this day to sit atop the birthplace of Jesus in Bethlehem, the church that I visited along with 60 other story members back in January of 2020. The church of the, of the nativity stands today where it has stood since probably the first century um, AD. And it stands there uh, on touched really, never destroyed by the Persians like all the other churches were, because just before ordering his troops to lay siege to the church of the nativity, the Persian general named Shar Baraz saw above the door, the front door of that church, an image that resonated with him. It was the image of Persian astrologers coming to Bethlehem to pay homage to the newborn king. They were fully dressed in, in Zoroastrian uh, attire, which was the religion of the Persians. And that 
military general was so moved by the familiarity of that image that he left that church standing. I don't know, but I, I can't help but think God might have had a plan for that holy place to remain unscathed and untouched so that millions of people could go and remember the birth of Jesus right where it happened to this day, every year. Who knows what God had in mind? When he brought those magi, he called them from their home in their language in Persia to come and worship Jesus. But it's clear from this passage that God, in fact, wanted them there. He wanted them so bad that he would stop at nothing to get them there. I mean, think of the lengths to which God went to speak to these astrologers. I mean, what did God do when he wanted to get through to a bunch of pagan astrologers? He spoke to them through a star. How good is God? How gracious, how understanding, how patient and kind. He speaks to stargazers through stars. He spoke to the dream interpreters through a dream to warn them and guide their steps to help them find another way home. And this is just who God is again and again in scripture, stopping at nothing to find a way to reach us, to speak to us, to call those he loves, those he wants, even if it means getting outside of his own uh, language, outside of his own uh, homeland, so to speak, outside of the norms we set around him. He reaches those he wants to reach by whatever means necessary. And this is really what matters most to us today. Not what this story says about Herod, not what this story says about the Magi, but what this story says about God. Because if this is your year, and I believe that it is, and I hope that you claim it with me, if this is your year to change, to grow, to know this God, if this is your year to find a way to break through, a way to heal, a way to change at last, then we have to know that real change doesn't begin where we often think it does at this time of year. When everybody's joining the gym, when everybody's re-upping with a therapist, <laughs> when everybody's making resolutions, <laughs> real change doesn't happen in those external places, all that's fine and do those things, that's great. But just understand this, real, real and lasting change begins with the knowledge of God, this God, knowing who this God is, knowing that he would go to any lengths necessary to know you, call you, reach you, speak your language, love you. And in fact, he already has. I think about my own journey with God and, and how he saved me from myself, really, and my pride. And I think God knew exactly the language I, I needed to hear in order to be saved. I needed an intellectual understanding of the gospel. M miracles and wonders and things like, I, I don't trust stuff like that inherently. I'm always looking for the magician behind the curtain, you know. I don't, I, a miracle wouldn't save my soul, but the right facts would. And that's what he does. To those needing intellectual facts, he gives them. To those looking at the stars, he gives a star. To those looking to their dreams, he gives a dream. To, 
to those who need to see the signs and wonders. I believe God is a God of miracles today as he's always been. God speaks to us in our language. He comes to us on our turf all because God wants more than anything else, you and I to come near to the Messiah, the newborn King of Israel, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. That's where real change begins for you and for me, understanding that God will speak to us and reach us by any means necessary. In fact, he's already done it through the cross. So I don't know what more evidence any of us need that God loves us more than we can possibly imagine than the almighty God himself laying down his power for a time, subjecting himself to the shame of the cross and the pain of the cross to send a message to the whole world from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, to Persia, the United States of America, to your heart and to mine, that he loves us, that he wants us, and that he's here to show us another way, another way to live, a new way to change, a new way home with him where we belong. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for being who you are. You are a God who finds a way. You are a God who finds a way for us to heal, for us to grow, for us to know you. And you're a God who helps us find a way through our messes as well. The things that have us stuck, you show us how to get unstuck. That's how much you love us. That's how good you are. Instead of giving up on us and casting us aside, even when we're stuck for years on end, you continue to show us a better way until we until we look up, until we pay attention, until we follow you out of the messes we've gotten ourselves in. Father, we thank you for a new year. I pray with confidence that this will be our year, our year to change and be transformed by your spirit, by your grace. And we love you and thank you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.